An elderly woman recently lost her husband, a painfully shy man of very few words. And following the funeral, the couple's daughter was reminiscing with her widowed mother, a woman of nimble tongue who was seldom at a loss for words. Mom, tell me, how did Dad ever find the words to ask you to marry him? Without hesitation, her mom replied, Whoever said he asked me? Well, it is traditional and I think honorable for the man to ask the woman to consent to be his bride. When it's done that way, the man takes on the risk of rejection, and that's what a loving man should do for the woman that he desires to marry. But there are those rare occasions when tradition is tossed to the wind. I'm not talking about some feminist who has a chip on her shoulder and she can't rest unless she plays a man's part and her boyfriend doesn't. I'm talking about that rare occasion when a woman willingly takes upon herself that risk of rejection. This is not something a woman should design to do, I don't think, but certainly never apart from wise and faithful counsel from others. But in the providence of God, cultural rules sometimes get broken. And on rare occasion, God smiles. We return today to the village of Bethlehem in Judea during the time of the judges. You'll make your way to Ruth, the book of Ruth. Here the widow Naomi and her widowed daughter-in-law Ruth struggle to survive and in this chapter break some rules in the process. But we see the smile of God in it all. We think of Naomi's life according to weather patterns. Chapter 1, the beginning of the chapter, we might think of the cold winds of late fall that blow upon the family. Famine has come upon Judah. And Elimelech and Naomi, his wife, leave the promised land for pagan Moab. Times are not good. It's difficult. But as chapter 1 continues to play out, fall gives way to the bitter cold gales of winter which set upon the family. Elimelech dies. And then both of Naomi's sons, Chilion and Malon, die. Malon being Ruth's husband. And Ruth is childless as is Orpah, the other daughter-in-law. And now all seems lost. Nothing is working according to plan. It's tragic, it would seem. But as chapter 1 ends, we come out of that chapter, we find that Ruth returns with Naomi to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Spring is beginning there. We are in the early stages now of spring and God's providential care of Naomi and Ruth as well. They've been through time of great trial in the dead of winter. But things are changing. Early springtime of God's providential care continues as we move through chapter 2. And we come to verse 11 where Boaz sees in Ruth the covenantal love that he so prizes in God. He takes care of her and we begin to see the movement of God through this man, but he also sees in Ruth this great quality. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, he says to Ruth in the field. 
and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you. The Lord bless you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's a key phrase. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz sees in Ruth this character quality. He sees in her faith and he prizes that and is thankful for this young woman who has come to work his fields as one gleaning at the edges and among the workers as he protects her and provides for her. As we come then into chapter 3, the earth just seems to continue to warm around Naomi and Ruth. The springtime of God's providential covenant-keeping, steadfastly loyal love warms Naomi and Ruth even more. For the past several weeks now, Ruth has been protected by Boaz and left to glean in his fields. And while Boaz's gentle kindness to Ruth continues to extend day after day, will this just be a short time or will it develop into a pattern? Back in the town of Bethlehem, Naomi begins to hatch a most unusual plan. A risky scheme, in fact, to find a husband for Ruth. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now remember, Naomi and Ruth are in fairly desperate straits as two widows living without a husband or son to protect or provide for them. Things had gone well with Boaz's help, but harvest is finished, and Ruth's temp job as a gleaner is now over, of course, with the end of the season. Now Ruth is still a fairly young woman, probably in her mid-twenties, but there is almost no hope for a Moabite woman to find a husband in the land of Israel. And especially this Moabite woman. Sinclair Ferguson playfully imagines a personal column in the Bethlehem Star. Quote, single Moabite woman, widowed, childless, probably infertile, with mother-in-law, seeks well-to-do Bethlehem businessman with view to marriage, must love mother-in-law. Can you imagine it? Her future is very, very bleak in this situation. Yet Naomi refuses to give up hope that Ruth will find the stability and the security that only a loving husband could provide in that culture. She says, should I not seek rest for you? We might translate the Hebrew, should I not keep seeking rest for you? She has been wanting this all along. It is her steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love toward Ruth. Her Hebrew word has said toward her to keep seeking God's blessing upon her life. This has been Naomi's characteristic orientation. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In the tragedy, in the dead of winter of their trial. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return to your mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you. This is what she wants, even for her pagan daughter-in-law. That God would care for her. That God would bless her and deal kindly with her. The Lord grant you, verse 9, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. They kiss then. They cling to one another. And they're weeping in this trial. 
There's no light. There doesn't seem to be anything good that is happening. But yet she loves this young woman who, as we know, covenants to stay with her. Your people will be My people. Your God will be My God. And Ruth comes back with her to the land. Enters into this land and Naomi keeps working for her daughter-in-law to find her rest. Naomi continues, verse 2, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? That's nothing news. It's already been established in chapter 2, verse 20. But it spotlights the point here. Naomi has an idea. And in a word of solidarity, she reminds Ruth that Boaz is our relative. Our Redeemer. Remembering again that in a day without insurance policies, in a day without welfare, in a day without health plans, your security came from the men of the clan. And when you were widowed and left without a son, which would have been very rare, the hope was that a Redeemer would come, that is, a man of standing and of responsibility within the clan who would take you in and care for you in some way. Naomi devises a risky plan by which he hopes to spur Boaz on to understand his role as a redeemer. A plan that involves Ruth very directly, as Naomi now explains. See, she says, he, this Boaz, verse 2, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. You have to realize right at that moment, the threshing floor at night? Undoubtedly, Ruth just really woke up and is listening to what Naomi is saying. Now, we need to understand a little of the context here. The threshing season, the barley and wheat have been cut and stacked and brought to the threshing floor. It might be a place of pressed earth, but ideally it would have been up on a cliff, on a rock outcropping where the wind would catch the chaff and drive it away it would be an ideal place and then that rock would allow them to sweep up the grain in the best of ways so the ox then would be put in a yoke and would drag this wooden sledge over the grain removing the stalk from the grain and then the grain pitched into the air hoping to catch the evening and night breezes that would blow off the chaff the grain would fall it would be swept up and put in a great pile now, these were in a, many times a festive time. And sometimes families would actually come out together and build a sort of hut and camp out there by the grain in a small operation. In a situation like Boaz's field, the workers would have been expected to do that. And sometimes even the owner would do that. This was to forestall theft in the night or even animals coming in and helping themselves to the grain. So someone always had to be sleeping out there during harvest time until they got the grain into town. As I mentioned, these were somewhat festive times. There was a lot of eating and drinking and merriment, as particularly in a good season when it was obvious that the grain was coming in and God was blessing Israel again here. But we must understand this. It was also a time in the dark of night, many times male workers separated from their families back in the town when prostitutes would come in on the scene at night and ply their trade. And men would respond in fleshly ways. So I think Ruth's heart has to skip here a beat when she hears Naomi even reference the threshing floor at night for a single woman. 
But Naomi is just getting started. Verse 3, Wash, wash therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on perfume. And put on your cloak. This would have been the outer warm cloak that might not have been necessary at that time of the year in the daytime, but if you're going to sleep out there at night, you're going to need this. It's like a sleeping bag that they use for a cover. Bring that with you. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She's to bathe her body. She's to anoint herself. She's to take her blanket. And probably veiled from recognition in a head covering, remaining incognito in the gathering darkness amidst other workers, Ruth is to watch where Boaz lies down to mark the place as he goes to sleep. Now what misses us here as English readers is that there are three Hebrew words that Naomi uses that are charged with sexual innuendo. We use the word, a couple slept together, and we know what we mean by that. There are three such words in her instructions. To lie, to uncover, and feet. To lie with someone was a common Hebrew euphemism for sexual relations. To uncover someone was a common euphemism for exposing a partner's nakedness in bed. It could be taken either way. It might just mean uncover something or it could mean something more. And the word feet was a euphemism for genitalia. What exactly is Naomi asking Ruth to do? The narrative is charged with sweat on the brow ambiguity. We're wondering where this is going. And that's what the narrator wants us to catch. Will lie, uncover, and feet all be exactly what they mean, or will they cover for illicit sex? The narrator will not tell us. Naomi is taking a desperate gamble here banking everything on the fact that Boaz will act honorably despite the compromising position in which he will find Ruth. So I say this before we get to it at the end, don't try this at home. This is not a good pattern to follow. This is not something that we ought to be doing. But we ask, why is Naomi suggesting this? And why is she using this kind of language? Or at least, why is the narrator using these terms? Why such measures? We must realize a Moabite woman does not just walk up to an Israelite and ask the man to marry her. Particularly a man of standing in a city such as Bethlehem. Naomi devises then a radical way of getting this man's attention. There is no way, culturally speaking, that probably Naomi and certainly not Ruth could ever have a private conversation with Boaz. You didn't write a letter to a man. You certainly didn't send an email. There was no such privacy permitted in this culture. How will they have a private conversation? Naomi devises a scheme. Daniel Block writes, the delicacy of the scheme is obvious. 
we don't see that, we really miss the point that the narrator is seeking to make here with the words that is, are being used. The delicacy of the scene is obvious, he continues, and the potential for disaster is extreme. From a human perspective, Naomi seems to be taking a huge gamble that Boaz may not interpret this series of nonverbal gestures in accordance with the meaning that she intends. Well, let's be frank. What are the possibilities? Boaz will want to sleep with Ruth at the threshing floor. That's possibility one. Possibility two, Boaz will be disgusted by this advance and send her away. Get out of here and he will ruin her reputation in a moment of time. The third possibility is by far the least likely. And that's that in that moment of time he will read this all in the right way and redeem her. Cover her in the right sense of the term. I'm reminded of a scene from my college days many moons ago. I had two roommates. And one weekend evening, two of us were fast asleep in our bunks. And our third roommate, who had a middle-of-the-night fast food job, came in after cleaning up and he had extra hamburgers with him. We'd been asleep for some time. And in his unusual way, he wakes us all up and sticks a hamburger in our face. I'm coming out of a dead sleep and I'm staring at this smelly hamburger. And my response was, get out of here. I don't get that out of my face. I turned over and went right back to sleep, though I was awake just long enough to hear him offer a hamburger to our other roommate who took it and in 17 seconds flat ate it, rolled over and went back to sleep. I have never to this day been able to understand that, how he did that. But I think when you're woken up in the middle of the night, that's kind of the two natural responses. Disgust or response. Will Boaz devour Ruth on the spot? Or will he respond in disgust and say, go away? Rather than asking Naomi if she was in full possession of her faculties, Ruth faithfully and loyally replies in verse 5, all that you say I will do. I'll do it. Now, it was risky for Ruth to go out to the fields in the daytime. Remember Naomi's concern that no one would assault her. That's in the daytime in this time of the judges, in this time of culture. Now she's going out perfumed and dressed and cleaned at night to the threshing floor. She is in many respects in the position of a prostitute. And only grace will protect her now. Scene 2 shifts from Naomi's lodging place to the threshing floor of Boaz, verse 6. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly by stealth and uncovered his feet and lay down. She pulls his cloak back far enough to assure that the chill of the night air will awaken him. And it works. Verse 8, At midnight... 
The man, that is just somewhere in the middle of the night is the idea. The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. This idea of turned over, the Hebrew word is fairly specific. It means to grasp with a twisting motion. You've probably had this happen in the middle of one of our Minnesota winters. You don't know how it happens, but you wake up all of a sudden and you're absolutely freezing cold and you don't have any covers on, and what do you do? You twist and grope in the dark, and as you're groping for the covers to try to find them and pull them back over. He's groping for his covering, and he finds a woman. You can imagine he's quite startled and shocked by this. What on earth is she doing here, and what will Boaz do with her? Here in the dead of night, Hubbard writes, darkness blanks out all background scenery. The couple lies in stark relief against the surrounding shadows and they whisper. A conversation they could never have in that culture honorably. But they have it here under the secrecy of night. How will it play out? We don't know. He says to her, verse 9, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth. Your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Again, the ambiguity is there. The double meanings. I am your servant? What does it mean? Spread your wings over your servant? Again, the English fails us here, but the word for wings is a synonym for the corner of a robe. It doesn't work in English, but it can be wings or it can be the corner of the robe. Is Ruth saying, take me under your covers? I am your servant? Here's this perfumed younger woman in the middle of the night at the threshing floor using a phrase that could be taken as a sexual advance or as a request for marriage. Put your wing over me, cover me even with the corner of your garment, would also be understood to be the description of a man marrying a woman. What is it? Will Boaz read this as an offer of sex tonight or as an offer of marriage in the future? I think we've already seen one of the keys. And I think we see why Naomi has done what she's done. And that is back in chapter 2 in verse 12 where Boaz praises Ruth saying, May the Lord repay you for what you have done with your mother-in-law and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She is asking Him to take her under His care as she has asked God to take her under His care. And Boaz respects that. She's a good woman. So what on earth is Naomi doing? And what is Ruth doing here in this compromising position? I think this gets the idea. And I may be wrong, you test it. But there's a dog in our neighborhood that was abused by former owners as a loving family now, but we from time to time run across this dog. And I have worked to try to get this dog to trust me. It is petrified of me. Not so scared of the kids, but something in the past. Men, not a good thing. And this dog just literally shakes as I approach it. 
And the first time that I approached it, and subsequent times since then, though we're past there now in our relationship, the dog did the strangest thing. I came up to it, and shaking with fear, it turned over on its back and exposed its tummy to me. Why would you do that if you're afraid of someone? Many dogs would lash out and bark and run or something, but this dog turned on its back and exposed its stomach, saying essentially, it seems to me, you can scratch my tummy or you can kill me. I'm totally at your mercy. Please hear me carefully. I'm not comparing Ruth to a dog, okay? That, that's, now there's a place where we do get the double meaning in, this, in our world, don't we? But, I think in a sense, that's what Ruth is doing. She is in a place of absolute vulnerability. And she is in a sense saying to this man, I trust you. You will care for me as you should. He can crush her or he can honor her. She rolls over in a sense, giving him every opportunity to do what he wishes. Will he love her in a godly way? Or will this be a night of shame for Ruth? What unfolds now at verse 10 bursts the bubble of ambiguity the narrator has been creating. It lets the lid off this boiling pot and it quells all of our fears. What seems to be progressing rapidly toward a vile ending suddenly blossoms into a scene of exquisite beauty. There in the night, He whispers back and says to her, verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. There's such beauty in that phrase. Waking out of this dead sleep, he doesn't devour Ruth. He doesn't drive her away in shame. Rather, he pronounces a blessing from God. He's certainly attracted to this young Moabite, but his heart reaction is to wish upon her God's blessing. He knows this woman. And in grace, he refers to her as my daughter. A term again of protective respect. And let me stop here again. I mentioned it previously, but let me stop again at this point and say, as as Paul writes to Timothy so we find here the same reflection of that wisdom in Scripture of how men are to relate to women. Within the context of the church, let's take it here, we are to relate to each other as family members. Men, there's someone who's considerably younger than you. That's your daughter. You relate to her in the best sense of the term as a daughter. As one you protect. As one you love. As one you play with as one you encourage. She's your daughter. You don't ignore her as a little kid. She's your daughter. There's women around you, a little bit younger, a little bit older, essentially in your generation. They're your sisters. Whoever you are, they're your sisters. You relate to them in the best sense of the word as a sister. Not with sibling rivalry, but a sister that you love and respect and care for and you would protect, you'd give her life for if somebody attacked her. And you relate to her that way. You don't ignore her. There's a woman that's older than you. She's your mother or perhaps your grandmother. That's how you relate to her. That's how Boaz is related to Ruth all along and nothing changes here. My daughter, he says, I'm your protector. I will care for you. 
I will not harm you. You, he says, verse 10, have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What was the first kindness? His decision to come back with Naomi to Israel. She could have gone back to her mother's home and sought a husband there in Moab. But with loyalty, she stayed with Ruth and entered into a completely uncertain future. He has always respected that and He's told her that in the field some weeks ago in chapter 2. Now He says this is even more loyal. It's loyalty to Him. He's an older man. She could have sought other means. No one thought she had any chance of marriage in that culture, but apparently He did. Apparently He thought she would have had some opportunity to chase another man in some way, shape, or other. But you've not done that. He acknowledges her respect for Him, her interest in Him, and He deeply appreciates it. What we have here then is not a prostitute propositioning a man. What we have here is a woman of noble character received honorably by a man of noble character. The covers were pulled off of his legs. He awoke and covenant loyalty begins to flow between the two of them. Nothing immoral. The people of Bethlehem, verse 11, know about her. I will do for you all that you ask. Boaz says, For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. It's not just Boaz. He underst- others understand who she is. Uh, the people of Bethlehem, the Hebrew may be Uh, specifically the leaders of the city, those that he works with, those of noble character, they all realize that Ruth is a woman of great virtue. He respects that because he's a man of great virtue. It's interesting, in some canonical traditions, Ruth is placed after Proverbs. And the indication seems to be that she was considered a worthy example of the Proverbs 31 woman as the heart of Ruth probably surges in anticipation now of marriage to Boaz, he drops something of a bombshell beginning in verse 12 when he says, and now it is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if He will redeem you good, let Him do it. But if He is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now lie down until the morning. I doubt anybody got a lot of sleep that night. Boaz reveals that there is another man, and it is clear that he is interested in Ruth. But as a man of integrity, he will take nothing from her until she becomes his wife. And so he determines to respect the legal rights of this man who if he would choose under the law would have first access to Ruth and to anything that Abimelech owned. Any possessions, any land that he had. Again, that's what all of this uh, redemptive marriage situation is all about the land and the people. Preserving the people under the covenant. Preserving the land under the covenant. He's going to respect that situation that God has set in place. She is not his wife. She may become another man's wife. At this point, she is his daughter. 
Again, we see the beauty of relating to all people in that way. Young men, don't relate to every young marriageable woman that you meet as a potential mate. Just relate to her as a sister. And then when that one that you might have been interested in marrying marries someone else, nothing bad has come. You can still relate to her as a sister. That's where he's keeping it. You're still my daughter. I'm still taking care of you. We're not married, and I'm not going to act like we are. So, verse 14, she lay at his feet until the morning. But arose before one could recognize another, and he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz is probably, because of a lack of sleep, able to rise before dawn. And he is careful to get Ruth out of there. They know what happened that night. It would be impossible to explain that to others. They know nothing sinful has happened at the threshing floor. But isn't it ironic, we now know she was there. He was trying to keep that from everybody around them and to protect her reputation. He sends her back in the night just as it is about to dawn. But here we are thousands of years later, and we know Ruth ended up there that night. But why do we know it? And why do we smile? And why is the pleasure of God spilled all over the pages of the story? Because of the faithfulness of Boaz to Ruth. Because he didn't devour her, and he didn't drive her away. He extended to her the grace of God. And she also though in a very vulnerable position, related to Boaz that night with integrity, and so we can hear about it now. And who knows, in the years that passed, how many times Ruth might have said, whoever said, he asked me. Verse 15, And he said to her, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. We don't know the measure of grain, but again, he's acting toward her in a protective, selfless way as he provides for her. The scene switches now again as Ruth returns. The break of dawn full to Naomi. Verse 16, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Boaz is relating not only to Ruth as a daughter, he's relating also to Naomi as a sister. He has her in view as he gives this grain and blesses this couple of widows once again. Notice the phrase, empty-handed. Remember, Naomi, I've come back to the land. I left full, I've come back empty. Boaz is filling her up. Filling her up again with stores of grain and blessing Naomi as he blesses Ruth. And Naomi replies in verse 18, cautioning the excitement perhaps, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Sit tight, she instructs. It's a fearful situation. There's another Redeemer. Who is that man? They know this man will care for them. 
This man is a good man. He's marked by steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love and kindness. Another man may have nothing more than interest in Elimelech's lands and Ruth's body. What will happen? How will the legalities of the situation play out? There was only very limited freedom for them to choose a man. And they could not choose between the two at this point. What would the Redeemer do? Sit tight. We will wait on Boaz, Naomi says. We will wait on God. As surely as Boaz proved faithful to Ruth at the threshing floor, so God always proves steadfastly, covenantally faithful to His children who wait on Him. God is at work. He has always been at work. He loves Naomi and Ruth and He is working behind the scenes of their pain and their heartache and their destitution to bless them in a way that we continue to celebrate to this day. He is a faithful God and that I think is what we take from this passage. The point is not this is a wise method of marriage proposal. Well, it worked for Ruth. I'm going to try something like this myself. Don't do that. It's not all's well that ends well. That's not what we're to take from this passage. We're probably to gather from this narrative that God blesses the plan of Naomi as much in spite of her scheme as because of it. Perhaps, again, Ruth and Boaz could laugh about this situation in the years to come that she in fact asked him, this is not a pattern to follow. It just simply shows the mercy of God in the midst of our strange schemes. How many times in your life? How many times do we find ourselves in what we perceive to be desperate straits and we work and scheme to find some solution and then we look back and realize how dumb that was? All of our strivings were pitifully meaningless, unnecessarily dangerous perhaps at times. We broke rules we maybe shouldn't have broken. But God in His mercy just keeps coming at us. Continues to supply His grace. Behind the dark wintry clouds of providence, those cold temperatures that make our lives bitter, The God of steadfast, loyal love was all the time working in all of the circumstances for our good. Because that's who God is. So in all of our strivings, He mercifully smiles and the sun of His steadfast love breaks through the gloom and warms the cold. That is who our God is. And we can put our faith and our confidence in it. He never fails His people. Because He can't. He can't do it. It's not in His nature. He will always prove faithful. This is a call to us to trust this God of faith. To put our confidence in Him that despite the trials we would never choose, He will never, ever leave us or forsake us. And as far as romance goes, there's a lot we must then throw out of this text and not follow. It's not why it's here. There are some things I think we can keep as well. 
as we think of the major emphasis upon the hesed, the kindness, the loving kindness and steadfast, loyal love of God, we find people here treating one another the same way. The love of God is a gift flowing through them to one another. Between Ruth and Naomi, between Ruth and Boaz, even between Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, this loving kindness flows. The faithfulness of God showing itself in their relationships in this romantic scene. We have here a genuine romance on some level. The key to the beauty of that romance, however, is this faithful, covenant, loyal love that Boaz demonstrates to Ruth. He shows in that love sexual restraint. And that's what makes the story possible. That's what gives it its beauty. How many steal sex before marriage and tarnish the gift. There again, the mercy of God is sufficient. But it's not something we should do. Sex in marriage is a good and beautiful gift but it is an aspect of a relationship that has been established in the sight of God as one of covenantal loyalty. When we come to understand that, we come to understand this relationship for what it's meant to be. It is modeled on the loyalty of God for us. So again, unmarried men, this is a call to us in some sense to treat all women respectfully. To treat them in a protective, providing, honorable way. And within our culture, with its ubiquitousness, one of the things that we need to very much steer against is that whole area of pornography which predisposes young men to treat women as objects of desire, as trash to be discarded when my pleasures are met. If that is what is feeding our minds and that is where our orientation is, we are pre-programmed to not treat a young woman appropriately. Fight it. Run from it. We need to treat all women, whatever their age and whatever attraction or non-attraction we may sense, with loyal, respectful, protective love. And when we do that, we will be on the right track as young unmarried men to someday enter into a relationship with a woman that is God-honoring and therefore pleasing in the best sense of the word coming from this day, perhaps Boaz and Ruth laughed about it from time to time. Coming from this day, this was a foundation of respect for one another that allowed them to revel in their relationship together as husband and wife. This Redeemer was a man of faithfulness who loved a woman of faithfulness to God. They were faithful to God, therefore were faithful to one another. What we're to gather in this narrative is that there is a Redeemer. And that's how God works. Through redemption, 
through one in a vulnerable position seeking redemption in one who can provide it. And that ultimate picture is not Boaz. We don't simply sing His praises, but the ultimate Redeemer is Jesus Christ who will not rest. Do we realize it, Christian? He will not rest until He has settled our redemption. That redemption has been won on the cross as He dies and pays the penalty of our sin. But that redemption continues to work itself out until we are glorified in His presence and the world itself is renewed. In repentance, have you laid down? Have you yielded your sin, your selfish ambition, your self-autonomy? Have you placed yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ? And do you know His grace in reaching to you and granting you forgiveness of sin? There is a Redeemer that we sing about today. And it's not Boaz as much as we respect Him. There is a Redeemer that we sing about. Jesus Christ, God's Son, who pays the penalty of sin and brings under His wings those who come in repentance. This Redeemer we can wait on until He completes our redemption. And we can sing His glories every day. Let's bow for prayer. How we thank You, Father, for what You have done. You are a God of mercy and grace to us in Christ. For anyone who does not know Jesus as Savior, I pray that this message would draw them to that love and would draw them into the body of Christ, the bride of Jesus. I pray that we would come in repentance as men, as women, in faithfulness, and that we will live out our lives as if we have indeed been redeemed by Christ. To this end, I pray that You will strengthen and aid us for the glory of Your name and for the joy of Your people, drawing to repentance those who are walking in sin and drawing to saving faith those who are separated from Christ as Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.